Imagine, if you will, that you have had an amazing experience with God. You've gone through a period of your life where you have seen God move in some pretty amazing ways. Now, some of you can really relate to this because you've had this happen. Uh, You've been in God's Word, and it's like the Word comes alive to you. It's like God's talking right to you. You go to a message or a worship service, and it's like, oof, overwhelmingly, it's like God's speaking to you. It's like, it's like you've entered into the presence of angels. You've, you've prayed, and it's like everything you pray for, shazam, it's, it's there. And it's, it's like God is listening just for your prayers. Now, if you've never experienced that, uh, boy, it's an amazing feeling. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a feeling of closeness to God, as if when you wake up in the morning, you literally are talking to Him like He's right there. For most of us, if you've been a believer for any length of time, that kind of an experience, it comes and it goes, based on our th- situations that we're in in life, but they come and they go. But for, for, any, for most of us, if we're, if we're a believer, we can identify with that because we've had moments like that in our lives. Uh, they could be kicked off with some amazing event. They could be kicked off with some dry event. And you just sought the Lord, and it was like He came to you. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you have, have had those experiences, but I'm hoping most of us have. And if you have, you know how amazing that is. Now, Imagine, if you will, that experience stops. Everything stops. You wake up in the morning and it's like you pray and you feel like God has left. You feel like your prayers don't go any further than the ceiling. You feel like you seek the Lord, you come to church, you try and get a hold of His heart, but He's so absent from you, you feel like you're almost distant strangers. You're seeking to hear his voice. You open his word, and it's dry words on a page. And it's almost like a desert compared to what you actually went through. We call them the mountaintop experiences in the valleys. And this valley stinks. It's dry. It's barren. And no matter what you do, you just don't feel like God is near. And you search him with your whole heart, and it goes on and on and on. And you listen to people like me that says, keep with it, stay with it, stay faithful. And it just seems like every time you try, no matter how hard you're trying, it's going nowhere. Now imagine if that went on for five years. Imagine if that went on for 10 years. Imagine if that went on for 50 years. Imagine if that went on for the rest of your life. How would you feel? Give me some words. How would you feel? Lost, sad, desperate, alone, (laughs) yeah. He's scared, absolutely. No good adjectives to put into this slot, right? We feel alone, we feel desperate, we feel scared, all of those words, and probably more could be added. I want to introduce you to a period of time when God was silent. He didn't say anything. He didn't give any verses. He didn't visit his people. His people would cry out to him, but God, sent, God felt so absent from them that they felt like he wasn't even there. And this went on for 400 years. Does anyone know the time of period in human history that I'm talking about? 
in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are 400 years we theologians call a time of silence. God does not speak. In the Old Testament, you got prophets, you got miracles, you got priests, you got temples, you got sacrifices, you got people crying out to God, you've got repentance, you've got amazing experiences with God, miracles like you can't even believe. But then it all stops. And it doesn't stop for 10 years or 50, it stops for 400 years. And that's where the Gospels start. Malachi, the great Italian prophet of the Old Testament. That's a joke for those of you that know your Bibles. There are no Italian prophets in the Old Testament. Malachi uh, is his name, but we call him Malachi. Uh, He wrote the last verse of the Old Testament, which was not the last verse written, but it was the last verse that we're supposed to remember. And for 400 years after that, we wait for the first words to be penned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels because they're all about one event, and that is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're all about Jesus. That's why they're called the Gospels. Gospel means, gospel means good news. And Jesus is a good news. So we begin the Gospels, we end the 400-year period with the good news. Now, you, still, you should know that during the 400 years, there's a lot of stuff going on. Do you know what happens between the Old and New Testament? I, I, okay, so I need to tell you right offhand, I eat this stuff up. I, I love this stuff. You, however, may get glazed over like the donuts we got in the back, all right? Your eyes may glaze over, but... Stay with me because I'm hoping at least a few people here might like this stuff as well. You've heard of Anthony and Cleopatra? 400 years between the Testaments. Have you heard of Greece? Yeah, 400 years between the Testaments. You see, at the end of the Old Testament, we have like the, the children of Israel have returned from Babylon. Babylon has carried them away into captivity. You've got Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? You remember that story? That all happens in Babylon. And they're in Babylon. They, they were there 70 years, three generations. And while they're there, they forget everything about God. And they forget because it was all taken from them. Their names were changed. They weren't allowed to speak Hebrew language anymore. There was no religion. Daniel prayed in front of his window, and that was weird. Because nobody was that religious. All God's people adapted into the Babylonian Empire. When Persia came in, and have you ever watched the movie 300? 400-year period, all right? Now I got you flowing with me, right? Persia conquered Babylon. When Persia conquered Babylon, one of the rules that they had was they didn't want to watch over all these people and have them all come so Babylon grows real big. They send people back, and they would rule them from afar. And so Persia decided they would send a remnant back to Israel. And so they went back to Israel, and they found what Babylon had done. After they get back from Babylon, the Israelites find rubble, burning uh, embers. They find uh, desolation. The Temple of Solomon that was radiant was destroyed into a pile of rubble. All the gold, all the stuff was taken. They've lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy Spirit has been absent. The last thing they saw was His presence in the temple. His presence is gone. There's no miracles. There's no priests. There's no prophets. There's nothing. They get back... But they got a couple of prophets, but those prophets eventually die off. Like we have Ezra and Daniel during this time period as the people are coming back. Nehemiah goes to the Persian king. He's at the right hand of the Persian king. He's a taste tester. He was really a uh, cupbearer for the king, which was he had some power that the king was allotting to him. Weird because he's a Jew and the Persian king 
chose to make him this powerful person. But he came before the Persian king and he said, oh, uh, uh, Esther, remember Esther? 400 years. He chose to make um, Nehemiah his, his right-hand guy. And Nehemiah, he said, why, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And he said, because all I can think of is our country from afar. We're in captivity here in Babylon and now you guys own us, you're Persia, but I'm thinking about our home. So uh, the king says, you know what, Nehemiah, take armies, take, uh, take, uh, take my letter, um, and take a bunch of people with you. Go back and rebuild. And they went back and they rebuilt the wall. Remember that story in Nehemiah? That's where the book of Nehemiah happens. And the, the story of the Old Testament ends with God saying, you guys are building yourself, yourselves homes, and my temple, my home, still lays in rubble. So they built him a lean-to, and the people cried because all they could build was not this glorious temple of Solomon that their grandfather had told them about when they were taken into captivity. All they could build was a shack. That's all they could do. And they build this shack, and they make do, and they're barely surviving. And then the Old Testament ends. By the time Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John start, the world has changed. Where did Rome come from? There was no Roman Empire at the end of the Old Testament. But not only was there no Roman Empire, Greece has happened in between there too. Do you remember Caesar Augustus? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Julius Caesar, remember him? The guy that conquered the world and cried when there was nobody left to kill? Remember that guy? He conquered the whole world. He ruled everything divided his kingdom up into his four, with his four generals, and those four generals messed everything up. The whole Grecian empire, Anthony and Cleopatra, they moved this, uh, this empire of Greece down into Egypt, which is why when you go through Egypt now, you'll find all of these ruins that have Grecian looks to them, Roman looks to them. Rome conquered Greece, so Rome now is the empire of the day. And when we open up Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, everything has changed. Rome is in charge. Not only that, but all of a sudden we have a temple. There was, there was a shack when we left the Old Testament. Now it's a temple. Do you know how we got a temple? Rome hated the Jews. <laughs> they, they always have. They thought they were rabble-rousers. So what they decided to do, because they were always creating a problem for Rome, they decided that they would elect a Jewish guy, make him Roman, and let him rule over the people. Then maybe the Jews would settle down. So they chose this guy. His name was Herod. Have you heard of Herod? The Jews hated Herod. He was a traitor. He loved politics. He killed his whole family so that he could remain king forever. Herod was a bad dude. He actually ended up dying with worms eating him on the, on the uh, throne that he was sitting on. Anyway, I, I, I see, I love this stuff. But anyway, Herod ruled over the Jews. Herod is the one that heard there was another king coming, and he decided that instead of risking a child growing up to take his throne from him, because apparently there's going to be a king of the Jews that is going to show up at some point and take all this away from him, he didn't want to lose it. So he heard the king of the Jews might be born, and he decided he's going to get rid of that. So you remember what he did? He killed every child below two years old that was around Jerusalem. Killed them all. Every baby boy. That's Herod. The Jews hated him. Not only that, religion had gone right down the tubes. 
everybody knew they should be religious. Like it's kind of in our DNA, we should do something religious. So they kind of stayed with it. For 400 years, they stayed with it. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we've got Pharisees, Sadducees, remember all these? Zealots. Where did they come from? They weren't in the Old Testament. These guys rose up because of a vacancy in the religious structure. And because there was nobody there that could fill it, there was no priest, there was no high priest anymore. Those were all gone. We're trying to figure out how to throw this all back together. We got a temple that Herod constructed so the Jews would just relax for a little while. But we got to put some people in charge. So all of a sudden we have Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Zealots. And they had all the power in the religious realms. And like Herod, they didn't want to lose their power either. That's why they hated Jesus so much. They actually hated anybody that ended up getting a bunch of disciples that followed them. But Jesus they really hated because Jesus could do all these miracles. And Jesus had all these disciples. And Jesus was always quoting scripture. And they didn't like that. And he would pick on them in public, and they didn't like that either. In fact, Jesus treated the rabble of the day with such grace and love. It blows me away. The only people Jesus picked on were these guys. Why? Because they should know better. They were supposed to be teaching what the people were supposed to be following. During the 400 years, a lot of stuff has changed. The people have gone from desolation and hunger to this new way of life. Did I skip over that verse? I want to give you the last verse of the Old Testament. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I want to back up just one more second. Can you take me back to Nehemiah? I'm sorry. I went too fast. I told you I love this stuff. When Nehemiah came back and built the wall, he built the wall in record time because they needed protection from their enemies around them that were seeking to kill them and keep the land that you know, was laying there to take. So Nehemiah built the wall with the people, and as they dug through the rubble the Babylonians had left behind, they came across the scrolls of God. They found them. And Ezra raised himself up and read from the scrolls. Can you imagine not hearing from God for 70 years, not being able to use any Hebrew language, not being able to use any of your Hebrew names, growing up in Babylon, learning to be a Babylonian and now a Persian? You have to learn these things. But now you get to come back home and you hear Hebrew. You may not even understand it. But you hear this ancient Hebrew language that your grandfather used to speak. And out of this Hebrew language, you hear the word of God. And when the people heard the word of God, they wept. They cried. And Ezra stood and read before them. And listen to this. This is a church service. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law that they found of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, which is how long our service is going to go today. (laughs) And if you think that's bad, for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. They were so in love with God again. They were going from a desert to a mountaintop. And one of the words they heard, this was it, the last verse of the Old Testament. Remember Ezra. Ezra was the, the, the last guy we hear from. He reads the book of the law, and he actually writes the last book of the Old Testament, which was not Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament to be penned was Chronicles. Why Chronicles? Because Ezra wanted the people to remember their roots Remember who they were. Remember their God and what he did. And so Chronicles is full of stories about the greatness of God. But it's not the last verse 
we have in the Old Testament. This is the last verse we have in the Old Testament. Matthew, uh, Malachi, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The last verse you'll read are, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction, the end. A promise, a great promise. I know you're here and you're looking at the rubble. I know you're here and you're hearing the word of God and you're thinking to yourself, we're not, we don't even know how to be religious anymore. It's, it's out of us. We tried to build God a shack, and he said, dude, why are you building me a shack? You're living in all these, these homes. You're taking more time to build me something half decent. That's actually in the book of Nehemiah. They didn't even know how to treat God. And the last thing God gives them is this wonderful verse in Malachi, a promise. I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah's lived hundreds of years before this. He's an old prophet, come and gone. Elijah, Elisha followed him. Elijah's like way back, but he did great miracles. And so the people thought not that Elijah was going to get reincarnated. They thought somebody's going to show up that looks a lot like Elijah. So after 400 years pass, all they are thinking about is this verse. So when John the Baptist shows up and suddenly he's able to do these miracles or he's baptizing in the name of, of, of the gospel and, and Jesus comes along and, he, and all that stuff goes on and then Jesus starts doing miracles, all the people are thinking about this verse and all they can say is, John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Are you the one we're supposed to be looking for? Jesus, are you Elijah? Are you the one we're supposed to be looking for? A promise, a great promise that is in their hearts. They won't suffer desolation much longer. But I am blown away that this is the last verse that sits in their minds for 400 years. Now, how old is the United States? Almost 250. (laughs) As a Canadian, I feel confident that I can say that. (laughs) Almost 250. Do you know Christopher Columbus landed on these shores a little over 500 years ago? Can you imagine not hearing anything from God since the time of Christopher Columbus? It's a long time. And all of a sudden, God changes things. The world changes. And God suddenly starts speaking. And here's what he says in Luke 1, verse 5. This is where Luke brings us into the moments that God speaks. In the days of Herod, the king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was what church? Important. She was barren. And strike two, they were both what? (laughs) That's right. Yes. The gene aversion, they're both ancient. Both advanced in years. Now, God may be silent, but he still had a remnant. I love that. God may be silent, but he still had followers. Zechariah and his wife were followers of God. But Zechariah and his wife have not heard from God for for years. Most of the priests they worked with weren't from the line of Aaron. They weren't in the right line even. They were chosen by Rome. Everything about religion was whacked. Nobody knew where to look for God, but... Zechariah knew the Old Testament scrolls and he believed the God of the Old Testament. 
So he hung on to those words, and he and Elizabeth were faithful. Though there were no prophets and no miracles for 400 years, he believed the last verse Malachi wrote. Maybe God would move again, but probably not in his lifetime. Right? Let's be reasonable. Jesus is coming back, right? But probably not in our lifetime. (laughs) We have a tendency to think that way. Zechariah had prayed for a child from God, but I wonder if he had given up at this point. He had prayed for a long time and nothing happened because God doesn't answer prayers anymore. It's 400 years of silence. God used to do that stuff with Sarah, with Abraham. That, that stuff used to happen way back in the Old Testament, but it doesn't happen anymore. Let's be reasonable. And we got two strikes against us. Elizabeth, we've been trying for years, nothing, and now she's too old to have kids. So probably that prayer has fallen off his prayer journal for a while. And then one night after 400 years of Jack, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Let me just say one more thing. They didn't even have the right guy coming in to burn incense at the right time of the year. You know what it means by lot? These guys... These guys bribed Rome to let them have the special occasions that they read about in the Old Testament. So they, they had it by lot. You could only do it once in your lifetime. And Rome decided when it was going to be. Zechariah had never done this before. This was his holy moment as a priest. And he goes in to burn incense. He was chosen by lot. It was a big moment for him and Elizabeth. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of, at the hour of incense Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. 400 years. An angel. Listen, you might forget what you pray for, but God never does. Zechariah had prayed this prayer, and I think it's fallen off his journal for a while now. But God answers in his own timetable, and we don't know his timetable. God hears every prayer. God hears every prayer. What what, what else does he have to do? Run the universe. But he's that interested in your life. He hears every single prayer. Zechariah probably gave up on this a while ago. But it's interesting that the angel said in verse 13, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been what, church? Your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Zechariah, whether he's still praying this, which I don't think he is. I think he gave up a while ago. John was a fulfillment of that prayer. And more than that, John was a fulfillment of this prophet, Elijah. Malachi talked about the Elijah that would come. That we know is John the Baptist. But you know who didn't know that? Zechariah is dead. Because God doesn't do much in his lifetime. John's job, his one job, was to be the forerunner of Christ. That is his only job in life. That's why John the Baptist was born. Lived a weird life, lived in the desert, ate locusts and honey and that kind of stuff, wore animal skins. You, you know the stories, right? Bit of a loner, if you, if you get my drift. But John was a fulfillment of Elijah. He would be the forerunner. He would be the one that everybody listens to. And when, when Jesus shows up, John would be the one that says, oh, there he is right there. That's, that's the guy. That's John's job. You know what I find very interesting? Elizabeth is an old lady. Mary's probably 14 years old. 
Do you know why Elizabeth couldn't have John years ago when Zechariah was praying for a child? Because Mary wasn't even born yet. I find it very interesting that God answers prayer in his time because he works off a really personal, selfish timetable. John had to be born at the right time, and that happened to be when, when Elizabeth was old in years, and she was barren, and when Mary was of birthing years, because Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. And John's job was to grow up with Jesus so that he could at the right time say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then everything changed. That's why John baptized Jesus. That was his job. His job was to proclaim who Jesus was in every way, visibly, verbally, in every way. And so John was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Malachi, Malachi's prophecy. John's one job was to fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah 700 years earlier when Isaiah penned these words, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is a prophecy about John the Baptist. That was a prophecy written 700 years earlier, and that is a prophecy with Zacharias and Elizabeth's name written all over it. In fact, get this, Zechariah probably read that verse and taught that verse many, many, many times, and he had no idea it was all about him. Verse 15. The angel goes on, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. A promise. We finally have a promise. After all these years, a promise. After 400 years of nothing, the Holy Spirit would be active again. And more than active, the Holy Spirit would indwell this kid from what point, church? From the moment of conception, from the moment that child begins to, you know, create that DNA that makes him into the fur-wearing, locust-person-eating person that he was. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, now, this is what I want you to hear. This is really the crux of it. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, strike one, and my wife is advanced in years, strike two. Why does he respond like this? Does this sound like really, really like positive and, uh, you know, uh, look toward the future and imagine what God can do? Is that, does this sound like a pastor? What's that like you would want to hear a pastor say to you? What, what is your response to this? How do, how, do you think, how do you think this comes across to Gabriel? I mean, Gabriel goes way out of his way. You know, he comes down, talks to Zechariah. How do you think this, this, what does this tell us about Zechariah? What's going on in his heart? He's probably a priest going through the motions because it's the right thing to do. He probably teaches people the right thing, but he doesn't really believe God can do anything. Every story Zechariah told about God was at least 400 years old. There was nothing that he could point to that God has done in his lifetime. That's got to dry your preaching up a little bit, don't you think? He never expected to see God do much. He was going through the motions because it seems deep down like it's the right thing to do. Like going to church when you don't usually go to church. It seems like the right thing to do. I know that I should do it. He was a priest because it, it wasn't a bad idea. And the angel said to him in verse 19, I am Gabriel. <laughs> I love this. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Do you get the, the idea that Gabriel's a little ticked off with Zechariah at this point? you get this idea? Like, who do you think you're talking to, Jim? Like, 
I've come a long way to deliver this message. I'm breaking our silence after 400 years, and you're going to talk to me like, uh, how's this going to happen? Lay out details for me? I'll give you the details, and I'll tell you when you need to know the details. Zechariah's forgotten about God. He's forgotten about his army of angels. As a priest, he's supposed to know this stuff. He's probably taught this stuff. But it's not real to him because God's silent. He's supposed to be teaching these last verses of the Old Testament, looking for Elijah. And in verse 20, And behold, Gabriel says, You will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which would be fulfilled in their time. We're not told what's going on in Zechariah's heart, but plain and simple, it is straight up unbelief. Why do I know that? Gabriel says it right there. Gabriel helps Zechariah see the truth about his own heart. And basically, Gabriel looks at Zechariah and says, you know what, just stop talking. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Shh. And you're going to stay silent for nine months because God knows what's going to come out of your mouth, all right? So you're, you're done talking for nine months. Zechariah was in a religious rut, probably had low expectations based on current conditions. How are your expectations? How do they affect your belief about what God can do? Do they ever? I have prayed for things that everyone says are ridiculous to pray for. I've prayed for stuff that every human being would say, yeah, you might be wasting some time there. I stood at the bed of this one fella, friend of mine, who was going to die. And they told him he was going to die. He was going into surgery because it was the only way that he could live, and he had a 5% chance that it would be successful. So they decided, let's, let's roll the dice. 5% is 5%. Everyone who came into the room spent their time saying goodbye. Goodbye, we love you, hugged them, goodbye, goodbye. I went into the room and said, I'm not here to say goodbye. I'm here to pray that God does a miracle. I always think at that time, like, like I always get these, the idea that somebody's boring a hole into the back of my head that's, that's thinking to themselves, don't give this guy false hope. But I'm not giving him false hope because I think that's what Jesus would do too. I think when Jesus says, pray for everything. He literally means pray for everything. Let the desires of your heart be brought before God. My desire was that this guy would be healed. So I prayed that at his bedside, crying. And, and I got to tell you, there was a little part of my heart that just thought, uh, uh, I wonder if I'm giving this guy false hope. It had to be about October because he went through a surgery, he survived. Not only did he survive, but he began to get better. And they said, yeah, you're getting better, but don't expect to get out of this hospital bed for two months. He was in church by the end of October. And I stood up in church, and I remember that one day because I pointed him out to the congregation, and I said, there's an answer to prayer. At that point in our church's life, we literally were praying for everything, and God was like answering prayer left and right. It was an amazing time. In fact, I stood up one time in front of the church, and I said, okay, I have to, be, I have to tell you to be real careful about what we pray for, because literally, I think God is answering everything. So let's make sure we're praying his will. So we don't, like, so you're not getting $4,000 or whatever you want right now. We want to pray for stuff that really matters. God answered that prayer. That guy was in church by the end of the month. And we rejoiced 
that God apparently can do ridiculous, miraculous things. The shade of glasses you wear have a lot to do with how you view what God can do. So what are the limits you put on God? Zechariah put all kinds of limits on God, and rightly so. God had been silent for 400 years, and the world had gone to hell in a handbasket. You remember Antiochus Epiphanes? During the 400 years. That guy was straight from the pits of hell, prophesied about in Daniel, hated the Jews so much that on his trip from northern Israel to Egypt, he decided he had had it with these Jewish people. He walked into the temple, he slit the throat of a pig, splattered it all over this brand new temple, desecrated the temple, and then he made the Jews eat it. And then he crucified over, I might get this wrong, hundreds of thousands of Jews just to top off the day. When you go through stuff like that, you got to think to yourself, where is God in all this? So I'm not surprised that Zechariah had little faith and that he didn't believe Gabriel was really an angel, just some guy dressed in a cloak with like fake wings or something. Here's the deal, God is real, Gabriel says. God is real because I just was with him. Seriously, I was just there. God is real. I'm real an angel. You're supposed to know this. You're supposed to teach this. You're supposed to remind the people the last verse of the Old Testament, and you haven't been doing it, so no more talking for you. Verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple because he kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. First, first, uh, thing, first time in human history we have sign language going on. And he would remain mute until the birth of John. His voice was taken away because his voice breathed unbelief. Gabriel's calendar suddenly gets busy because he has one more mission to accomplish. Gabriel's second mission is later in the chapter. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Does that sound familiar, church? A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was... Second event on Gabriel's calendar was a chance to go see Mary. Verse 30, the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now there's a lot to focus on in this text, but I want to laser focus on one thing, and that's the response of this 14-year-old girl. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, church, what does she say? How will this be since I am? Does that sound like Zechariah to you? Yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. Zechariah says, how's this going to be? Because my wife, she's old as the hills. I'm as old as the hills. We've tried for years. We haven't had a baby. How is this even possible? Mary says the same thing. How's this going to be? Because I'm a virgin. I, I may not be very smart, but I know I've got to be with a man in order to have a baby. I get that. At least, at least Zachariah had Elizabeth. You know, at least there's, there's two people helping the process along there. Mary's got nobody. How shall I know, how shall I know this? How, how can, can this be because I'm a virgin? But there was something very different about Mary than Zechariah in her heart. The angel responds further, verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, your cousin, in her old age, 
has also conceived a son, and this is a sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. I love that. Elizabeth apparently had been hiding her pregnancy up to this point, probably because she thought she was going to lose a baby. That's normal. So for six months, she hasn't told anybody. Zechariah's not, he's not going to tell. Mary gets the news not only that she is going to be pregnant, but also that Elizabeth has been pregnant for six months. How did that happen? Mary has to believe two miracles. Now, what would her response be? Verse 38. Now, listen for it, church. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Her response, total humility, right? But church, it is more than that. Zechariah gets nine months of being mute, and then it's over. Everyone felt sorry for the poor guy. He can't speak. He must have fallen, bumped his head. Something happened in there. Now the guy can't talk, right? Everybody's going to feel sorry for Zechariah. Mary gets nine months of being pregnant. How do you think people are going to think about Mary for nine months? Yeah. Zechariah would be congratulated. I mean, this is the first reveal party that we have, right? He would, they would invite friends over. They'd blow up the balloons. They'd say, boy or girl, Zechariah, he, he can't say anything, right? So, so there's the reveal party. Everyone's invited. Everybody celebrates. No one's going to miss this. Elizabeth is pregnant after all these years. It's a miracle. And for the rest of their lives, Zechariah and Elizabeth would be congratulated. They get a little bouncing baby boy. They can go to any place they want. They can speak at any conference they want. It's, God is great. God is amazing. Look what God has done. And everybody will go, wonderful. We love it. How would Mary get treated for the rest of her life? Mary would bear reproach because of this miracle her entire life. Excitement over Elizabeth grows. Embarrassment for Mary grows. Mary would lose status. Listen, you want to know some questionable insight? If your daughter got pregnant out of wedlock and was nine months pregnant and came home and said, Daddy, Mom, I'm going to have a baby and i got nowhere to go. Wouldn't you clear out some area in your house to let her stay? Not Joseph's family. Nope. This is a time when family gathered so that they could take a census that Rome wanted to take. And you remember the story how Mary and Joseph came home because the census had to be take, taken. And when they came home, there was no room for them in the inn. There's no hotels. There's no hotels back here. There's no Air, Airbnbs. There's no such a thing, all right? When, when they say there's no room in the inn, what they meant was their parents decided not to give them space. And their parents said, you're not coming in here, but you can stay with the animals. And they put them in the barn so that she could have her baby in the barn. So you tell me, what kind of reproach did Mary have to bear from this wonderful miracle that God gave her? These people who have not seen a miracle for their lifetime would not believe... Listen, Joseph didn't even believe it. He needed a message from... from Gabriel's really busy after 400 years of sabbatical, right? I've got to go see Joseph now. All right, let me go see Joseph. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This is all planned out. Stop asking me questions. Just do it, all right? When Jesus stood in the temple for the first time for this great honor of reading in public... The attendant in the temple gave him the scroll from Isaiah, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. 
And when he read from the scroll of Isaiah, it was a wonderful moment. It was a special moment. And when the people heard it, he had read so well, like my girls here this morning, he had read so well that they commented. And you know what they commented? They said, isn't that Joseph's son? Do you know what they were really saying? Isn't that the bastard? That's what they were saying. Because for his whole life, nobody's going to buy the story. Everybody knew what happened. And Mary and Joseph bore the reproach their entire lives. In fact, when Jesus showed up and started telling these Sadducees and Pharisees and Zealots how it really was, one of the big problems they had with him was that he was a bastard. Listen to what they said to him when he started telling them how religion should be. They said, you are doing the works of your, that your father did when he did miracles. You know who their fa- the father they were, are saying here? The devil. The devil. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Do you know what they were saying to Jesus? We know where you came from, Jack. We know. You're not telling us anything. You were born in a terrible, disgusting way, and we're not listening to you. In fact, they didn't believe him so much, they eventually killed him because they couldn't shut him down. No one bought the story that Joseph wasn't the real father of Jesus. Everyone would whisper about these two and their indiscretion their entire lives. So I'm telling you, church, that Mary is facing a lifetime of dishonor while Zachariah is getting nothing but parties. So who had more faith? I'll give them both credit. Isn't that an amazing story? Let me give you a few so what's. And the so what's go with this big point. Your response reveals your heart. The bottom line for this whole Sunday is, church, what do you really think God is capable of? Do you really think he's that invested in your life? Do you really think... He has your, your, you have his ear whenever you want it. Do you really think God will fight for you? Do you really think he's a friend that sticks closer to the brother? Do you think that this God loves you? Your response to all of that reveals your heart. So number one, God will move. He will move. So church, live like it might be tomorrow. Can you imagine if we lived like God was going to answer our prayers tomorrow? Wouldn't we be a little more confident in our lives? Wouldn't we be a little bit more faithful? Wouldn't we be a little, little more pleasant to be around? The psalmist writes us and he says, God does not slumber nor sleep. He hears every prayer we pray. He may not move on our timetable, but he's got his own and it's much better than ours. And he's not going to sit down with us and let us, you know, try and explain to us why he's not answering prayers or or, or why he's going to say no to some prayers and yes to other prayers and wait for most of them. God hears and answers prayer. He loves to do that. I think I'm going to get to heaven, and me and him are going to have a conversation, and he's probably going to say to to me, Craig, you'll never realize how many prayers you prayed and forgot that you prayed that I was busy answering your whole life. It all comes down to what you think of verse 37, church. Verse 37, remember this, nothing will be impossible with God. So do you believe it? Or has your life been like 400 years of just really, really boring religion? or maybe 10 years or 50 years. What do you believe God is capable of? If we took our time to think about it, we would say that God is capable of a lot, else why pray? 
Last week, for instance, <laughs> we had a family, Ken and Andrew, who were told by the doctors, something's wrong with the baby. Oh, they were worried. Who wouldn't be? They were, uh, grandparents worried. Who wouldn't be? I, I meet with Frank. He's a mess, right? Hard Italian. He's a mess. Meeting at Starbucks. No. But worried. And he knew his job as a dad was to make sure that everybody remembered God can do anything. So keep praying. Paula's, uh, pray, pray. Every time I talk to Paula, we pray, we pray. So sure I prayed. Yes, we prayed and we prayed. And you know what happened? What happened? <laughs> All tests came back negative. They told her probably this kid's going to be mentally challenged. There's something wrong with the heart. We don't know if she's going to be able to carry it the whole way through. All this bad news, and we're praying about all that. All the tests come back negative. Everything's right back on track. There might be some issues, but we're not going to worry about that because God is great. Now, you can look at this one of three ways. The one of three ways is the doctors got it wrong, right? Two, we got lucky. Or three, God answers prayer. Now, if you're going to default to one of those three, church, where are you going to default? Let's default to number three, okay? Because if we're wrong, it's not a bad place to land. Let's believe that God can do anything. Let's pray like God can do anything. Let's live our lives like God can do anything. And let's tell this world that lives in this futile, dry valley of life that we serve a God who loves us and who is very interested in our lives and who will fight for us even when we forget what we pray for. Let's tell them that about God. Let's live our lives like we believe that about God. Zechariah made the mistake of thinking radically or, th- or, or thinking reasonably, pragmatically about God. Let's respond like Mary and believe that God is capable of much more than we give him credit for. And number two, second thing, the fact that God surprises us should not surprise us. Every time we look out the window, we are meant to be reminded of the fact that God likes to use, likes to do things we think are impossible, like making something out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3, when it talks to us about our kind of faith, it says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Two nothings came together to create something is unreasonable, unrationing, uh, uh, irrational thinking. But believing that God has always existed and birthed this earth out of a word is very reasonable. In fact, that's where we start our faith. We live in a world constantly where we are to be reminded that God loves to do the impossible and make stuff, something, out of nothing. The world around us is meant for us to remind, to remind us that God loves to surprise us, and he does it quite often. Zechariah responded out of discouragement. Mary responded out of faith. So church, I say it again, your response reveals your heart. Your response reveals your heart. When God answered prayer about Tiana, you know what my response was? Yeah, I expected that. I want, uh, I, there was a little surprise. There was a lot of rejoicing, but there was a lot of, yeah, I expected that. Because I happen to think that God does do anything. He can do anything, and he wants to do stuff that points us to worship him greater. Live by that same faith. In fact, Hebrews goes on to say in verse 6, Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Christmas is a great time to be reminded of this truth. Is the incarnation beyond your ability to believe? (laughs) God became flesh. When you see a nativity scene on the front lawn of somebody's house, what do you really think? Not the ones in cages, that's just dumb. But I'm talking about the nativity scenes that are in front of people's houses. Is it just a story that you've heard before that has meaning for you? Is it just a decoration? Or is it because you believe God has come in human flesh, has lived among us, has become human, so that we could, <laughs> we could touch him? And we could see him? And he rose from the dead and he came out of the tomb so that we could touch him and we could see him. So, there, so that our faith, although strong, has lots of proof to back it up. If you struggle with this, you should read 1 John 1. 1 John 1, later on in the New Testament. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. How do you respond to God's promise? Do you respond to it like Jesus Christ? Uh, do you respond to it like Zechariah or like Mary? Do you believe the truths that God's Word teaches or are you stuck in a rut? I want to encourage you to get out of the rut. You may think, well, God would do things for Craig, but he won't do things for me. Oh my goodness. You you should really get to know God a little more. He loves to do stuff like this. (laughs) He loves to surprise you. You pray for something that you think is, you watch God surprise you. Loves to do it. Why? Because he loves to remind us how he loves us. Zechariah would say, God has done great things in the past, but he wouldn't do stuff like that for me. He wouldn't move for me to answer prayer. Religion is a good idea for some, but a spaghetti monster to me, for the weak. These are thoughts that saturated God's people in Zechariah's day, but church, I'm here to remind you, God has done great things, and he still is in the business of doing it. Don't let your response be too much surprised. Just remember, God loves to surprise us with his grace. This was the message of Zechariah. Listen, this message is foolishness to the wise. And it's a stumbling block to people who are caught in religion, dead religion. But for those of us who believe, the gospel story of Jesus Christ is the power of God. And it is the salvation of God. Let's pray. So Father, we come to the end of another Christmas message. I pray that it has been um, different. Maybe, Lord, that it would remind some of us that are kind of stuck in a rut with our faith that without faith it's impossible to please you. So use this message to spark a new hunger in our lives, a new hunger in our hearts for you, a new desire to want to read your word, a new desire to want to come to church regularly, a new desire to want to pray more often, a new desire to... To, to search out you and, and to worship you. Maybe to turn on the radio and just listen to some worship songs. Giving you room to work in our lives, room to maneuver, to, to breathe new life into our dead faith. Lord, I pray that you create a church here that believes you can do the impossible and lives like you are anxious to do it. I love that you love to surprise us. Surprise us in 2020, I pray. Help us to see you in a brand new, fresh way starting today. And may you use this Christmas season in our lives to remind us that you are a God who still answers prayer, 
still loves us, still fights for us, and loves once in a while to just surprise the socks off us. In Jesus' name, amen.